Deezer Originals Trailblazers Hello, welcome to Trailblazers. I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawks. And uh, however many years ago, when I tore up my XFM contract and walked <laughs> out on the Friday before the Monday that they hired Chris Moyles, the nicest call that I got on that Monday was from Nick Hawks, just saying, love from the Prodigy Boys and, uh, you know, more power to your elbow. And I've got this idea for you. I think that you should do like the, the encyclopedia the, the, of electronic music and, and do like a, like a Desert Island Discs thing and talk to, you know, the people who made the tunes and who played the tunes and signed the tunes. And in a, in a nutshell, I said, this is a great idea, Nick. It's just got one one flaw, which is that you should be in it. <laughs> and 15 episodes later... Here we are. Here we are. And I, I know I'm really thankful that you that you said, hey, Nick, you should be behind the mic as well, because that was a surprise to me, and I hadn't really considered it. But you just said, no, it'll be better if it's the two of us. And Well, I, I said that not knowing the things that I've found out yeah. about you, yeah. my friend, through yeah. Trailblazers. <laughs> I, I love the fact that, you know, we find out about these people that we know and that we love or that we don't know, that yes. we respect, you know, these these people from, you know, really good friends like Marianne Hobbs yes. or, or, or Gary Newman through mm. to just people that I admire, you know, like yeah. a, a Paul Van Dyke or, yeah. or, or um, and, and all that. And, and I found out stuff about you that, that you that you almost had a career in radio, that you went into music instead of radio at one point in your life. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's so right. it got you in not even knowing that. And of course, it's the same with me. I'm learning things about your background and your influences that I didn't know. So it's it, funnily enough, our friendship is developing through the through this Trailblazers thing. Through it's the, quite interesting. Yes, isn't it? through the magic of this wonderful podcast. Oh. So here we are with uh, a, a best of. Well, I mean, it's called Best of 2018, but of course we've been doing this since whenever it was since 2016, well, yeah, wasn't it? or maybe even 2015 yeah. might have been the very very start because we, we were a bit slow at first getting the episodes recorded, um, kind of getting it off the the ground, if you like, and then we really hit a lot of momentum just maybe in the last six months. Yeah. So what we want to do now is as a, a kind of a, a Christmas special yeah. to, to round up the, the amazing people that we've talked to and just pinpoint a few little personal highlights That's right. from these incredible trailblazers. You know, mm. trailblazers does what it says on the tin. These are the people who, who blaze trails, who opened doors and who, who they're like test pilots. You know, I, I, I really see these people as like. Um, Sam, what's his name? Uh, that incredibly good-looking American actor and uh, writer in the right stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, Jessica Lang, Sam Shepard. Um, there you go. I see these guys as like the the, the Sam Shepherds of uh, of electronic music. Trailblazers, Gary Newman. Let's start off with with an absolute legend and one of the first. I think it was no, it, it was, was the second the... one that we did mm. uh, after Renart uh, Renart from RNS. Well, that's right. But the first one to be broadcast was was Gary Newman. That's right. So yeah. uh, so Gary. I mean, obviously, this is a no, Gary was a no brainer for me. What did you think as someone who came at music from a different uh, a different kind of uh, entry point yeah. than me? Yeah. You know, Gary was a man who made me the man I am. But yeah. what did you, what went through your mind when I first said let's do Gary Newman? Well, I also also thought it was a no brainer. Uh, because and there was no questioning or resistance or anything like that from me on Gary because you know there are some guys that have 
put down you know the building blocks of electronic music on which so many other people have have, have worked and and kind of moved things forward craft work or one of those artists wouldn't we love to spend some time with uh, with a member of craft work or two in here gosh yes uh, yeah that'd be good um uh, and gary newman's another and and yet yeah, when i was a kid growing up gary newman was big news and was making electronic records before I'd even really figured out what the genres were and all the rest of it. It was just like, yeah, he, he was making great music. And um, and I thought, yeah, he'd be a, a brilliant person to, to to have along. And and there was a couple of points in, in the Gary Newman episode that I particularly liked. I liked the, 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 when he talked about the need for a, a different persona, because he obviously we, he opened up quite a lot about his personality and some of the challenges that yeah. he had, which was interesting and news to me, because um, I've not really sort of researched Gary's kind of um, c- career in depth or whatever. So that was interesting. So the way he talked about, like, when he steps on stage, you know, like Bowie. Um, who, who died the week that we talked to Gary, that's actually. Right, that's and it, right. we, the whole room was resonating with grief. That's from right. The, from, the, from such an overwhelming loss. Yeah, yeah. So he was taught, you know, the similarity of, of taking on this alternative persona to enable him to be an artist. And I think he actually said in the episode that his dad said to him, look, you've, are you sure this is the right? career for you because you know you're struggling and whatever and and that was when he was like no clear different persona for on stage as a way of kind of managing it and I, I, I thought that was a highlight for me and then another highlight was when he picked a track that you had made of course. Gosh, yeah. That well, I, yeah. <laughs> that, that this is slightly awkward for me because it, you know my, my the only time I've ever kind of lost it on radio was when Gary told me that uh, Losers, my band, the, the band that I uh, am privileged to be in, uh, mm. influenced his mm. last record, you know, his last two records as it, as it's turned out. And yeah. um, when you, when you're in your hero says that they, you've influenced them, that kind of, uh, that is uh, a mind blower, right? one of the most, uh, you know, the most mind blowing thing I think that anyone has uh, ever said to me and would, yeah. I'd be happy if I uh, died tomorrow for that to be on my gravestone. Yeah. So that was, that was fortunate. I, I felt for me to be, in that kind of uh well in that conversation to see you know to to uh yeah to sort of hear that and witness that that was yeah that was great how about for you was it from on the gary thing was was it a special a special one for you it was I, I it was well it was another special one because i had bonded with gary on my remix show on yep. when it was on xfm yeah and uh we, we had some incredible moments together and there was you know one moment where i i burst into tears uh, during an interview because i was i was so moved I, the mic wasn't wasn't up at the time but right. um when i you know i did and his wife Gemma came and just gave me a massive hug and Amazing. gave me her number and Gary's number and their home number and just said look if you whenever you're down just call us and come and stay with us whenever oh, you want and wow. it started a really really wonderful relationship which yeah. i uh, i value with uh, with right to the bottom of my heart yeah um so with that in mind what clip are we going to play what little highlight from this amazing interview yeah. um are we going to cherry pick yeah 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 well i've selected this one and it's the it's the moment when Gary tells us about how he first gets a basically a synthesizer in his hand and presses a key and what happens i mean what a moment for an electronic hero to to describe and very privileged to hear that so so let's hear that 
Behold the machine. <laughs> I behold the machine. <laughs> so, so what was your what was your entry? What was your entry drug into electronica? What was your what was your entry uh, your entry point into the world of electronic? Music? It was quite by chance. I, I was um, I got signed by Beggars Banquet. As a, we was a three piece. I was in a band called Tube Army. Yes, of course. We were a three piece punk band. I was guitar and vocal, bass and drums, you know. Uh, so we go to the studio to record what essentially was our live set, what we've been signed for. Uh, and while the boys are unloaded, I went into the studio to say hello and meet the engineer and do all that bit. What studio was this? The Spacewood in Cambridge, uh-huh. it was called. Um, and while the, me, uh, the other two were unloading the, the car and bringing the stuff in, I, I went in to say hello. And in the corner of the control room was a, a synthesizer, which turned out to be a, a mini Moog. Ah, I never seen one before, a real one. I hadn't really heard any electronic music that I'd liked. Really, I'd like Kraftwerk a bit. Um, I'd even bought an album or two of Kraftwerk, but I, I didn't want to do it. I admired it for what it was. Yeah, but it was for me. It was too electronic. It was too artificial. There was mm. no real yeah presence to it. I don't, I don't know how to explain it very well, but yeah. it was, for the me there was something missing. Sort of, yeah, sort of. there was an organic element that wasn't there. Yeah, which I didn't realize at the time, but I now know that from, that's the. I love that side of it, and it needs to be there. Yeah, for me. Um, so I go to the studio and I see the synthesizer, and I'm I'm very geeky, and I like noises anyway, and I like switches and buttons. It's not like <laughs> airplanes; you're covered in switches and buttons. You know? <laughs> so uh, I said to man, "Do you mind if I have a go?" Now, I, th- I I I've always thought it was hired and it was waiting to be collected. I, I've, I've read recently that it wasn't; it belonged to the studio. But I didn't know that. I thought it was going to be taken away. So I said, "Do you mind if I have a have a go of it?" So uh, they said, oh, "Okay, fair enough." They you know, plugged it in, turned it on, and I pressed the key down. I didn't know how to set them up at all. It was a big mass of dials and buttons. Just pressed the key, and luckily, whoever had used it before had left it on this huge bottom end growl roar and it, so I press this thing and the noise you know, this massive sound the room shook oh. never heard anything like it and at the low end you, know, you felt it through your feet and whoa one finger whoa that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one that's finger incredible no skill whatsoever no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one finger that's for me so, I yeah. thought so a fascinating insight to the epiphany, the musical epiphany of the genius cited as an influence by everyone from Kanye West to Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And here we rejoin Gary for the story of his tune to save the world. It would be teardrop, massive attack, because it is beautiful. And you would never destroy anything that could make something that beautiful. We've had such a colourful and rich tapestry of artists and legends that we've talked to in Trailblazers. But the one kind of uh, thing that maintained and stayed the same with almost all of them was that we 
recorded them all in a radio studio, yeah. except for <laughs> our next guest. So we got to actually travel, and it was a it was a real treat to kind of get out to, to get yeah, out, it was get nice. out of the house, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> nice. We travelled down to uh, to Brighton to to see who you know the, the Lord, the King of Brighton, if you will, <laughs> Norman Cook, aka Fatboy Slim, and this was a real treat. You know, Norman being one of the men who who kind of uh, soundtracked my my real falling in love with dance music, ha- having got into it through Goldie and Liam Howler, as we've yeah. discussed many times. Yeah. You know, it was it was the Fatboy Slims and the Jacques Lacans and the John Carters and all of those guys um, that, mm. that, that really kind of turned me on yeah. rather than the flat four of, of techno and yeah. house, yeah. as you know. So uh, I was really thrilled to be able to talk to Norman Cook. Yeah, and, and so was I. And uh, I... I kind of my path hadn't crossed with Norman that much really over the years. There's some people in dance music that I've kept and electronic music that I've kept seeing and bumping into many times over the years and then there's a few that I've never really had a proper in-depth conversation with. Norman Cook is one of those. So so it was great. It was kind of the first time I'd had a proper, you know, conversation with the guy and, and there was various bits that I enjoyed and I, I like the fact uh, I thought it was funny when I was able to uh, tell him that in that first gig that he played, um, when he was when he joined the House Martins, and the very first time he played with them, when I asked him, like, oh, do you know who was um, the warm-up DJ <laughs> that night? And he said, no, there was a Goldsmiths College. I was like, me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thought, what a moment. I thought that was funny. It was brilliant. <laughs> and, what a, and, and what a venue to do it. I mean, you know, we've all pretty much all heard of... Um, Norman and well, as it was Norman and Zoe's place yeah. in, in Brighton. Now Norman's play, Norman and Woody's place, yeah. and uh, it's an incredible. Uh, it's an it's an amazing uh, location for sure. a place right on the kind of pebbles of yeah. Brighton Beach, yeah, and right. it is a maybe an Art Deco place or a, you know a nineteen tens nineteen twenties place right on the beach, and being in his office playroom yes. man cave whatever yeah, you want to yeah, call yeah, it yeah. surrounded by stuff by all of this fat boy slim paraphernalia yes. and covers of you know like him and zoe on on the cover of nme and him on the cover of mix mag and, and, and all these things and exactly shirt, shirts yes a, 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 yeah. a brazilian shirt signed by pele in one on one end of the room yeah and another one signed by ronaldo the 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 right ronaldo yeah, in my yeah, mind, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the brazilian one <laughs> on the other side of the room because yeah. and and him confessing that he was Ronaldo's wedding DJ. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. So what uh, what clip are we going to highlight from uh, from Norman's excellent discussion? Yes, uh we're going back to his childhood and uh and the the die was cast early for Norman and uh so let's hear this clip about how he first uh kind of decided what he wanted to do with his life. The the one that really nailed it for me, uh, and I'm not not proud to say this, it was the Osmonds. Uh, So this would have been a few years later when I'm starting to think of careers other than train drivers. (laughs) And it was the summer that, that, that Crazy Horses was out. And the Osmonds came over and they were like on the news when they got off the plane. And I looked at Donny Osmond and he had a leather jacket with his name written in studs on the back. And he had a piano with little light bulbs that lit up when he played it. And he had this little thing on the edge of his piano uh, during the chorus when they went crazy horses. It went... And I, 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 I distinctly remember watching that and just thinking... 
that's what I want to do for a living. <laughs> I want a piece of that. And yeah, so and I th- I've, we've, we've worked it out. I was eight years old. Eight years old. And from that moment on, when any, if anyone asked me, what do you want to do for a living? I, want, I said, I want to be a pop star. I want to be a musician. So that was something of a musical awakening for the uh, British DJ that has seen more armpits than any other DJ in the world, we reckon. Um, Fatboy Slim, one of our esteemed guests on Trailblazers, and now the the end of that show, uh, which features Norman's song to save the world. It's got to be Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. Um, by, um, play the Carpenters version. I've just found out, actually, that it's a cover version. The Carpenters covered it? The Carpenters covered it, yeah. Good God. Um, and it is, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, yeah, this is how beautiful, melodic, and uh, welcoming music can be. It's not necessarily, a, it's not a dance track, but it would, it would say, I mean, if I, if, if I send them, if I send, send the aliens, smack my bitch up, they might have a different attitude to, to us humans. But um, yeah, I think just the, 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 the sultry tone of Karen Carpenter's voice alone, let, him, let alone the, the, the sentiments of the song. Um, and it's just a really beautiful piece of music. And it's, you know, people always, they, I always say it's my guilty pleasure. If there is one weakness in in Trailblazers, I'm going to say it. It's a bit of a sausage fest. It is, isn't but it? That's, but that's only because dance music and electronic music, and you can argue music, is a bit of a sausage fest. I agree. And so we, I guess we're just reflecting the actuality of it. And, and it's we, We've got to point out there are several trailblazing uh, females that we've tried to get on the show and haven't managed to make that happen yet. Yeah. We, we live in hope that that would happen, yeah, happen absolutely. next year, don't absolutely. we? Absolutely. We are, you know, we're in discussion with, we, uh, you know, Annie Nightingale, absolute total legend, uh, bless her, Cotton Socks, has said that she wants to be involved. We're trying to find a date for her. You know, we've asked... Uh, we've asked... Um, uh, that's the bunch. Yeah. Okay. Um, but um, you know, hey, and we'll keep asking because because we we need to hear all the stories. Yeah. Fingers crossed. But the one, uh, you know, for me, first lady of electronic music, um, really in the in the last twenty years, uh, is Marianne Hobbs, and I was keen to do this for personal reasons because she's she's my son's godmother mm. and uh you know we worked together at radio one and became really really close friends and have been such good friends over all this time but also she really is a trailblazer from from the other end of the the spectrum the kind of broadcast end of it because we talked to so many you know producers and djs yep. and progenitors of different genres but with marianne you know there would she she popularized the whole dubstep movement mm. when it was you know deep and cool and you know before i heard of it yeah before anyone had heard of it you know she's just she's always been kind of on the next wave of incredibly 
cool uh, electronica and, yeah. and, and she has such integrity with everything that she does, everything that she promotes and, mm. and, and everything that she plays. Mm. And so I was really keen to get her in, uh, on the show and I was, I was delighted to have this conversation with her. What were, what were the highlights for you, Nick? It was the early stuff uh, again. So it wasn't so much what she's been doing in the last five or ten years. It wasn't the dubstep uh, kind of discovery and championing it was it was the earliest stuff that got me um so it was the thought of her growing up in a home where music wasn't really welcome so that was interesting up in Garstang I think it is in the that's right in Lancashire yeah up in Lancashire um and I liked the the way that she described her steps forward uh it sort of breaking out of of a, a kind of home life that was very different to to what she went on to absorb. I like the bit where she was talking about kind of getting the spelling sorted in um in an article for a for a music magazine over the phone in a payphone box. You know, trying to get that right, just trying to open doors and make something of her life. You know, um, I thought that was that that was good. Um, but the clip that um, I uh, one I picked out was one where she talks about community and being in a sort of you know kind of proper gig environment for the first time and the the power that um that that comes with that so uh i thought we'd uh, we'd play this clip so i turn up on this scorching hot day um and all that's there is a field full of angels there's no sanitation there are no toilets there are no drinks there's no nothing there's just mm. motorhead on stage in this blistering hot field and um I think it was simultaneously probably the most terrifying and liberating experience of my entire life because <laughs> I remember by the end of the day suddenly kind of understanding what what community was and I thought, oh my God, I'm in the middle of a field and suddenly for the very first time in my life I found all of these people who think the same way of, as me. They've mm. made the same pilgrimage. They've come to this field and we're all together in the same place and I, I had this childlike sort of feeling at the end of the day just thinking like oh shit why do we all need to go home why can't we all just stay here forever and build a city you know <laughs> and live on this site for the rest of time and, and that's um, why festivals work isn't exactly. it because how many hundreds of thousands of people around the globe think that every time that it gets to sort of sunday evening sunday night they're like oh we just yeah why can't this be forever right Marianne Hobbs, one of our most shimmering trailblazers. And it is heartwarming, really, when you think about how how she came out of nothing. And, you know, how she came out of a, like you say, a, a musical household, a non-musical household. Um, her father committed suicide. Uh, she was at one point in right at the beginning of even pre-career, you know, as she said, living on a bus, on a hippie bus, in a car park somewhere in or outside of Garstang in Lancashire. I, I mean, you know, she has talk about girl come good you know her story is incredibly heartwarming and if you haven't heard her trailblazers i would urge you to uh use this as inspiration to listen to the whole thing you can get it via Acast and itunes and all the usual podcast channels and of course the full version on deezer and so we go to to marianne's tune to save the world and unsurprisingly it was a, a fantastic and brilliant left field electronic artist that she discovered mr james blake I was the first person ever to play this man's demos on the radio and uh, 
God, it just makes my heart sing to see his star in the ascendant um, in the way that it is. So I'm going to go for a brand new piece of music from James Blake. Um, this is absolutely exquisite. It's called Modern Soul. Goldie. Another guest that I really enjoyed speaking to was one of the most talkative guests I felt in the uh, the 15 shows so far. And at points, I felt like we would never, he'd just keep talking forever. Goldie. It yeah, was an interesting one. got gills. <laughs> he just keeps going, doesn't he? He keeps going. And uh, and I enjoyed that one. Um, and I really liked his, his overall sort of music selection. And I liked the way that he um, kind of talked about the, the roots of of drum and bass and and the the culture that surrounded it cutting dub plates and groove rider this and doc scott that so there's a lot of depth on the the history of, of drum and bass but also it was a very honest and personal discussion wasn't it eddie yeah it was and it, it, it the clip that we're going to play is uh well, like you say, very honest and very personal. But I just have to say at this point that it was really special doing Goldie for me. You know, he Goldie and Liam Howlett, as you know, they're the they're they're the ones responsible for pulling me out of rock and into and convincing me that actually dance music rocks as much as, as rock music. Mm. And uh, so, uh, you know, and like I said to Goldie, I, I look at the centerpiece of his first headline exhibition above my fireplace every single day, you know, and that's, it's, it's my most cherished piece of art that I've ever bought of, uh, of many pieces that mean a lot to me. And the clip that I want to highlight is I think probably the most personal clip, um, like with his, with it, with it, I remember at his exhibition, I bought the most emotional piece. It was the, the, the subject matter that he was dealing with was very unemotional. Right. It was those, it was the, the, the prostitute cards that you get, yeah. used to get in, in phone boxes. Yeah, yeah. And he was blowing them up life size with all the phone numbers and all and everything. Okay. <laughs> and, but then there was this beautiful piece in the back room of this exhibition of just, it was a stained glass heart, golden and red heart. Yeah. And that really, got me and I, I bought it and, and it, as he you know he signed the back of it for me and he just goes you've got them but you went for the emotional one Eddie you know I'm not I'm not surprised you've gone for the you've gone for the only emotional one <laughs> and I've gone for the really emotional clip yeah uh, out of an excellent Trailblazers episode where we go rewinding right back to before Goldie had really discovered music and he was in his own words a problem child yeah growing up in around Wolverhampton care, going in and out homes. of care homes and sheltered accommodation and this kind of stuff and there's this moment that he just describes that where he he hears a logical song by Super Tramp and uh, plays it again and again and then has to be uh, physically removed from that room and there's a point at which they these people these social workers i guess are dragging him by the feet and his hands are still held on to that to that record deck and as a as a metaphor for for goldie's life that is a pretty powerful one let's uh, let's go there because i was administered into a children's home they finished the paperwork i'd been pulled out of a breakdown in a foster you know in a, in a foster home where i just it, it was it just broken down. It was it was it was just the beatings. It was getting crazy. I was smashing things. I was burning a lot of stuff. You know, I was borderline. Uh, you know, borderline um, 
setting fire to everything I could. So you were a problem kid. I was a, yeah, I was a big problem kid. I mean, I, I, and, I'm, and a true fire starter, dare I say? So. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. See what dare you did I? There. My, 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 <laughs> we went there. Well, I think when when Keith started singing that, my eyes started to twitch a little bit yeah. when, when that record came out. Yeah. But I remember being in a, in, in a they, they, they kind of shut the door and had locked a room. It was like a playroom mm. um, to wait to finish the paperwork. And I, and it, we had like, you know, like three steps going down, like a tiered room. And in the bottom of that room was a gramophone. And uh, it was a very Proustian moment because I opened the gramophone. I can smell, I can smell the kind of veneer wood alongside this slightly clunky mechanical machine called an arm you'd pull it down it would lift up and it would go across into the record on the, the seven inch record was on there with this cream label mm. was in fact super tramp um, the logical song and and, 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 it, and it came across and it went down onto the record and it just played and i think at that moment i just i know what to, it just hit me this record because it felt like this person was talking to me it wasn't generic at all and it, it stopped and it, and it came up again and I pulled it down again and it did the same thing and played the record again. I think it was three times I played it or four times. And then they, the social worker came in along with the warden and uh, someone else and they said, well, that's it. And the social, the social worker had to go and I thought, well, I'm supposed to be leaving, but I wasn't, I was there to stay. So, of course, I just had a bit of a melt, you know, just started screaming and shouting and it's just pulling me from a gramophone. There's two people trying to hold me. And I'm just, the social worker's leaving and they've got to leave and it's all emotional and I'm just screaming and um, they're just pulling me away from his gramophone, really, kicking and screaming and it was that song. That was a very prophetic record, actually, that, because it, it, do you remember that he said, uh, watch what you say or they'll be calling you a radical, a yeah, liberal, a, liberal, a yeah. criminal. A criminal, yeah. And it was, uh, it, I, I, somebody graffitied it, actually, in, in I think in Herne Hill or Brixton, like just a few months ago, it, around, the, around the election and it yeah. just, it really made sense now, you know, just that... That well, just the words, yeah, the song. words for that song are quite prolific for me. I know, and, and and you know, and um, and it's, it's it's I think it is I think it's quite strange and beautiful in a lot of ways that the synthetic generation I call us, you know, I think Liam definitely, you know, the Brain Tree and all what they did there. And I never went to that neck of the woods, mm. but they were the kind of Southern ravers, if you like, and we were mm -hmm. the Shelleys and Stoke and Birmingham and mm. Coventry and yeah. the Eclipse and. You know, I think there was a time when those kind of ravers came together, but I, th yeah. I do think it was a little bit like there were two halves of the music going on and we're gonna, they were doomed to collide. And I think rave culture in the fields made us travel up and down the country to do that. Mm. You know, Donington, Mickey Linus's wedding. I was outside listening to Terminator when that was. We'll get to that story. We were. <laughs> I, I was there. I was there. There are times. Danny Rampling. 
So our next Trailblazers is uh, one of the most famous names, DJ names that you could mention in any country of the world and anyone who has been inspired by or involved with the kind of flower power end of uh, and psychedelic end of dance music from 88 onwards will know Danny Rampling. And this was a, a special one for me because I feel as though Danny and I uh, made a really lovely connection at Radio 1, you know, before uh, before I was a thing, certainly. Mm. And um, and he just had such a lovely vibe about him. As soon as he came into that into that quite stodgy corporate uh, scenario of Radio One, he was a real. You could tell he was a maverick. He was a free spirit, and he was just someone who was really powered by love. That's that's the thing about Danny, and and th- that's the thing that I took away from the Trailblazers more than anything else is that here is a man for whom love on every level, is the most important thing in the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, I also um, had have a sort of special kind of uh, relationship in a way with Danny. So, like, you you guys bonded at, at Radio 1. And, um, and it was Danny that played the record that became uh, the, the first hit proper hit record that I signed actually oh, so, brilliant. yeah yeah so I was able to that was kind of some of my uh, favourite stuff in that show talking through that and funnily enough I was down at Ministry of Sound just the other week on a Friday night and uh, Daniele Devoli happened to be there actually so hey, that, that little right on time <laughs> Heather, Heather Small shouldn't, you should have got the gig Eddie clearly it, it, when, Mike, when Mike Pickering was looking to replace the dulcet tones of Loretta Holloway unfortunately he did didn't know just, that you were available. I, I wasn't available. At the time. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Was Numero Uno by Starlight was the the record that uh, um, I signed that Daniele Davoli and his production collaborators in Italy made, and and Danny Rampling played it in a club, and I ran over to it, and and that was that was all um, you know great stuff. So it was lovely to sort of talk about that again. Um, although the clip I have picked out is about um, Shum, his legendary club that I didn't go to. I wish I did, but. No, never made it there. Um, and he's talking about how that grew and, and, and kind of how that uh, came together. So let's have a, a listen to Danny Rampling talking about Shum. Of course, the birthplace of Andrew Weatherall as well. The Carl Cox thing is interesting. So, yeah, what was Carl doing? He, so he played at the second Shum, did he? That's right, yeah. And, and Carl was playing at um, Paul Oakenfold's club, uh, Ziggy's in Stratton. Right. Um, and he was the opening DJ and he had something to do with the sound system there. And I saw him play there and he playing you know on three decks it's like wow he's like you know really good right and got friendly with Carl and then he came along and played as well and then that was it you know the stage was set yeah and within weeks with all the clubs with the clubs that Paul did and Nicky did you know it went from a small core group of people just these seeds to you know to this people you know queuing around the block to get in that must have been amazing must have been amazing for you to turn up at the fourth fifth shim and see a line just all the way down the street or whatever, and well, it, it was a great it feeling. It was like, how are all these, how, you know, how are all these people going to get in here? But I didn't have anything to do with the door, so fortunately, my role was to entertain people downstairs, yeah, and make sure the party was rocking, and you know, kind of host with people. But so <laughs> uh, that was no easy job on the door, though. That's for sure. You know, the lines of people and a, a room that held three hundred, and even that was a squeeze. 
Um, you know, there was and a lot of disappointed filled, people. Filled it three, four times over. Well, probably, exactly, yeah. but that wasn't the ethos of the club. Yeah. Um, and if we had have done that at the time, I think it would have, it could have fizzled out quicker than it did. We didn't go for the commercial angle on it, and you know, it was just it was about the music and the club itself, and it attracted more. I think it attracted a lot more attention because it was so difficult to get into for a lot of people because of the capacity. So that was Danny Rampling talking about the the birth and the explosion of his legendary Shoom Club that was responsible for the popularisation of Acid House. And so, uh, do you want to know what Danny's tune to save the world would be? Yes. If What's we're your under tune? threat, if it's you know, this massive threat, then it would have to be um, Wagner, um, the Ride of the Valkyries. It's, you know, mm. Apocalypse Now, Bridge Too Far, Military Martin Music. Go get them. That, that would surely make the aliens destroy the world, wouldn't it? Well, I think, yeah, I think it would make them flee. It would be an incredible soundtrack to the aliens destroying the world. We're that's... under attack. It's a collective effort, and that's the soundtrack. <laughs> OK, well, so um, you've, you've chosen a classical piece of music, and, yeah. and, and through through your whole life, we, we haven't... Um, you know, where, did classical music figure, or, or were you like me? Did you pick this because of um, Apocalypse Now? Um, well, I I picked that through military con- uh, connections. I was um, I was in the territorial army in the early eighties. So, oh and, really? Uh, yeah, and that's that's another part of my life. And uh, yeah, I think that I love classical music as well. And the fact that, uh, that that particular piece of music, it's from an opera. It's a great piece of music. It's got lots of energy again, and it's it's very powerful. Uh, it's been used in some great films as well, like Apocalypse Now and Bridge Too Far. And, um, it's a battle march, and if we're under attack, then we we can't run away. We're going to have to go into battle with these like these alien forces. But how, God knows how that would happen. The way the world is at the moment, it's a pretty divided place we live in. So collectively, yes, in an ideal world, a collective, a global collective, and the world is under threat. That would be the uh, the theme tune. We've had such a different variety of guests on Trailblazers. And one of the things that I love about it is the holistic way that we approach our guests. And when Nick first had the idea for then me to do this and then me have the idea for us to do this. And um, it, it was it was a very holistically motivated idea and a very noble idea that we would talk to. Obviously, people who made the tunes and people who wrote them and produced them, but also the people who played them on the radio and also the people who played them in gigs and and nightclubs and also the people who signed them, Mm. who gave them that patronage that Mm. it's 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 almost like a a religious. If you think about art in the Renaissance, I'm slightly going off on one, but (laughs) it's it's you know, it's it's I, I see someone like our next guest, Daniel Miller. Yeah. 
I, I see him almost papally, like like the Pope in fifteen hundred and fifty or whatever, um, commissioning someone like Michelangelo or Caravaggio or whatever to to make these incredible works of art. This is the position that people like Daniel Miller and your good self, Nick, um, have been in, giving patronage to cutting edge artists of the time. Mm, yeah, well, I I really enjoyed speaking to Daniel. Obviously, there's such a depth of history there and something that i've i've started to mention a little bit more often of late is the way that things interconnect and we'll talk about paul van dyke later but paul van dyke was referencing hearing mute artists as he grew up in east berlin and the way that all the dots join together is is fantastic something i like about daniel is, is there's a parallel between daniel and renart from rns these are guys that are deep in the game they've been in it decades but yet daniel still he's just like renard you'll find daniel djing in berlin playing music from 6 a.m till 8 a.m somewhere <laughs> and you'd think you know really is he still you know got the got the fire in his belly to do that and daniel has and renard has and and uh i like that i like that when i meet people who you know got that vibe yeah how incredibly heartwarming in this we, we live in quite an ageist society and to 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 go in to imagine you know as a as a dance music loving tourist or whatever going into uh you know a berlin nightclub and seeing a guy who is somebody's grandfather be behind the decks <laughs> dropping tunes that are making you go absolutely <laughs> doing backflips you know i love that so uh what uh, da what daniel miller clip are we going to focus on yeah we're we're not going to talk about him uh dropping bombs in berlin we're going to uh talk about him uh discovering depeche mode so let's hear how uh how daniel uh uh kind of first encountered Depeche mode. Normally, I, you know, I might have gone off to get a bite to eat with with Frank and the, the band, but I thought I'll watch the support band. I don't know. I just felt I felt like it. Yep. And there was these three three kids, mm -hmm. four kids. Sorry, three four kids. Um, and they were kids, like seventeen year old kids, in really dodgy, neuromantic kind of costumes, mm. uh, with three cheap sort of not you know simple synths. Yep. You kind of balanced on beer crates. Yep. And a drum machine and yep. the singer who looked about 12, <laughs> had a kind of a, an underlight kind of to make him look goth, gothy. Yep. And they started, and I thought, fuck out, this is good. Excuse me, that was unbelievable. It's like an incredible song, really well arranged, very, you know, very simple. I mean, it was like almost too too good. Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just a first. They just do one good song yeah. and the rest of it's good. They just got better the whole way through, you know. And that was they pretty much played the first album, Speak and Spell. With some a few other bits wow. Of so you listening to just can't get enough and to new life and or, or to, to yeah, not to just can't get enough. That came a little. Oh, so yes, bit. of course. Well, but it was on the speaking spell. But yeah, definitely new life, yeah. dreaming of me, yeah, a photographic, all those wow, all those earlier, the really early versions, and they sounded amazing. I thought there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's I didn't quite understand how it all worked, you know. Mm. And so I said to them, uh, I don't quite believe what I was seeing in a way. So yeah. I was, so I said, oh. I went back backstage. I went to the little room at the back and said, "Oh, I just to say I really love that. It's really great. Are you playing again soon?" So yeah, we're playing again the following week. So I thought I'd come back again mm. just to make sure I was wasn't yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I brought a couple of I brought, there's a guy on mute who's still on mute called Boyd Rice. On goes under the name of Non. Oh uh, yeah, Non. Yeah, he's a no, kind of a noise artist, but he's totally into pop music as well. And he came along with me, and uh, he said, "God, man, you got to sign this. This is great." Anyway, I knew that anyway. 
Yes. And I went back. I said, I'd love to do a single. Why don't you do a single? He said, they said they were kind of being a bit cool. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, OK, let's do a single and see how it goes. I mean, it was really like that. So as Nick said, we weren't talking about uh, someone dropping bombs in Berlin, but rather someone discovering bomb droppers in Basildon. Uh, the story of Daniel Miller and how he discovered uh, one of our greatest bands in the UK. A Depeche Mode on Trailblazers where we're going to rejoin Daniel Miller for his tune to save the world. There's no question in my mind that it should be Lieback, the, the uh, Slovenian band and Life is Life. Um, the Liebacher band I've worked with for a very long time. Aesthetically and in many ways they really embody what, I, what Mute is, I think. They've never had the crossover success. But this last year, 2015, was one of the most... In- bizarre interesting events that i've experienced in well probably the most actually in my entire time in the industry which was going to north korea with lieback they were the first western rock band and they wouldn't call themselves a western rock band ever to play in north korea life DJ Zinc. So another episode that was uh, a good one to do uh, was DJ Zinc. And um, and that was an interesting conversation, Eddie, Eddie I thought. Yes, it was, because we, we, we talked to so many kind of godfathers of scenes. I don't think they'll mind my referring to them in, in that way. You know, your Gary Newmans and your, your, yeah. your Daniel Milliers and, and uh, yeah. your Renard van der Papelieres, who yeah. we, we will get to. Yeah. And it was nice talking, it was nice, similarly with Marianne, talking to someone from the next generation, if you like, mm. um, talking to someone who's a bit younger. Because obviously with Trailblazers, you're, you're talking about these people who blaze trails are going to be of a certain age. Mm. It's very, very rare and uh, and difficult to be a trailblazer very young. Mm. Um, having said that, we, we do have Oliver Jones, a.k.a. Scream, on the list mm. to, to talk to. But it was kind of nice getting... To talk, talking to someone who was uh, from a different generation, you yeah. know, from a slightly younger generation. I agree. I like the I like the pirate radio stuff there, and I like the again just the the sort of basic roll your sleeves up and give it a go thing, and and also the way that 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 um, Ben Zink talked about kind of hanging on to his day job as long as. He, he he could in a way until finally it was like okay I can l- now let this go and concentrate on music which you know rather than just like yeah fuck it I'm going to be a rock star <laughs> you know he was he was dealing with the sort of balancing act that lots of people do where they're like ah I love DJing I love making this music but can I let my day job go or not what happens if if the record making doesn't happen and he hung on, hung in there for quite a while yeah which I he, thought was interesting yeah he struck me actually as wise beyond his years he is. He's- and smart very, very, very smart cookie. Very sensible, um, kind of cautious in a in a in a very cool way. Yeah. Um, and the clip that I want to uh, 
to draw people's attention to, and it's really a, an obvious thing to zoom in on, is the story behind the S, the U, the P, the E, the yeah, R, yeah, yeah. the S, the H, the A, the R, the P. Yeah. You know, in, in the mid-90s, there was this, you know, as, as drum and bass was really kind of finding itself, and um, Goldie had released Inner City Life, and um, Ronnie Size was uh, getting the, the, the Mercury Music Prize, I think, around, around those sort of heady yes. mid-90s days. Um, you had this record that just came out of nowhere. From I remember the, when I was at Radio One, and the plugger from BMG mm. gave me this record with a cannabis leaf on the front. Oh, right. And he was like, "Hey, Eddie, you're a bit of a puffer. I think you're going to like this." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, absolutely right on both counts." And, the, and I knew the record. I, I, I was aware of the record because I, you know, was regularly going out to drum and bass raves yeah. every hearing week, it, week in, all the time, right? week in, week out. And I yeah. just kept hearing this amazing tune, and I heard that it was hype and Pascal and some other guy and you know, Zinc and. They were called the Garanger Crew, and they somehow had secured a major label deal with BMG. Yeah, and this yeah. was kind of because you know Goldie was in London, and yeah. and uh, uh, Ronnie was on Mercury, and yeah. so this was this was BMG's response. Yeah, and uh, what an incredible record! And it's still to this day, it is one of my favourite records, and and for you too, yeah, right? It's a great, great track. Yeah, Absolutely. so let's let's hear the the genesis of Super Sharp Shooter, the track that changed my life. Oh I my mean, god! I don't, want, uh, I don't want to sound gushy or anything. Well, let, let, let us gush then. That's one of the best. <laughs> that is one of the best tunes ever made. Ever. That is just. Oh my god! It's just. Oh, oh brilliant! I can't even. I can't even find words. Let nice, me ask you nice something. How it came together. So, yeah, but how, so how I mean, did it come together? So you've got a method man, and then so who yeah, I did phoned the, him up. I was like, Meth, do us a favour. No, I mean <laughs> so, this is all samples, you know. Yeah, and so and was the with the your alphabet honor. bits? Was that LL Cool LL J? J? Yes, and your no, your honour. <laughs> 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 and that, so, was, that was Trev. And yeah, so, that was Trev. He's all Trev pretending. To, <laughs> how did you, there is a version of Super Shot Shooter where we got Pascal's friend to redo the uh, Method Man bits because it was for a sub bass compilation because we didn't want to, you know, because we did, we wish we we thought that is going to be hot and it's going to be a problem. Not hot as in good, hot as in we're going to get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and and how did Super Sharp Shooter come to get? Like, how did that the whole concept of it? Like, where did it come from? Um, it is from a UK hip hop a cappella. Um, I think it's called Reverse the Hearse. Um, and the bloke said, you know, in the thing it says it's a super sharp shooter shooting shots. Oh, yeah. I just took it and, you know, and, and uh, cut it up. Played it, yeah. And yeah. it just, you know, the thing is that, it, with a, you know, that track really did change my life. And, and basically, because of what I was doing in that, in that um, you know, that track and the, the ready or not. The Fuji thing. I I left the uh, eight year. Mm. You know, my, my eight years <laughs> was up. <laughs> it was a sad day. You know, I, I did a very sad when I handed in my notice. Like not at all. I was fucking <laughs> over the moon. I was like, yes, and I don't have to do this anymore. Did it explode straight away? Well, the thing is, I'm quite a. I'm, I'm a. I'm, I'm quite a granddaddy sort of a dude. In so I. Waited until I was definitely able, you know, I was really mm. definitely cool money wise mm. because I thought, because if that went wrong, there, I didn't have anything else to fall back on. So I waited, but you know, I, there was a situation, there was a, there was a period of time where on a Friday night I'd be going to Germany to DJ and, you know, I'd come in on a Monday morning and, and they'd be like, hello Ben, how was, yeah, did you have a nice weekend? <laughs> and I'd like, yeah, you know, and th everybody was, it was just like a little office and everyone had been watching the TV and that. And I would say, oh yeah, I went to Germany. They'd be like, Come on, Ben. Where have you know? It was it was a bit. It was, it was like weird because I was in this really boring, crappy office, and yeah. but was then doing these quite cool things. Um, and 
So yeah, so so I did Super Sharp Shooter and that, that remix, and it was popular. And at the, you know, I didn't know at the time. I didn't make it and think, yeah, this is going to be big. Or I didn't. I just thought it works and I like it. And and um, but yeah, so it so it did well. And hype liked it, and Pascal yeah, liked, hype liked it, it, and, it. Then, and um, yeah. So so and then around the same time, I did the the Fuji's Ready or Not remix. Yeah, um, and that was. Um, and, and you know, there's a that, there was a lot of there was confusion. A lot of people thought that hype did it, but I did it. But he he helped with the the baseline. Had a different baseline originally, and I played it to him, and he was like, "It's good, but it'd be better if the baseline was more like Hello Lover, which was one of his tunes." He mm. said it'd be better if it was like that sort of thing, and so I took it away, redid it, took it back, and he was like, "Yeah, this is this is cool." So, so he was effectively A and Ring you at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Executive producer. I mean, if you look on the records at the time, we used to write executive producer, did mm. you? Because it because he was influential in the the stuff. He, yes, you know, I he remember. wasn't just didn't seeing that. Yeah, and so and that's what it was. You know, I I I I, I was I was. I, I, I wanted that to be on there because I thought it's fair you know he's having a lot of influence so fair play if, if people if he gets recognition for it yeah. so um, yeah so I did the Ready or Not remix um, around the same time and because of those two tracks um, you know I started to get my name out for DJing and so I was able to leave my office job <laughs> So the wheel turns full circle now and we go right back to the beginning of this. So shortly after Nick called me up uh, post XFM resignation and uh, gave me slash us the idea to do this, it almost came with a... And I know who our first one's going to be. Mm. It's going to be my pal Renart. Yes. Um, who's Renart? Oh, well, you'll know him as the R in R&S Records. And of course, then my mind goes to that incredible prancing horse logo and to yeah. to Joey Beltram and to uh, the Boom Boom Satellites and all these great records that that um, I, I have and still have yes. that, that have got that kind of almost like the Ferrari of dance music logo, you know. Uh, And of course, you guys have a a wonderful history. We do. Well, I think that at the front end of doing this, we recognise that we, well, I recognise we need to interview some people that we have close personal relationships with just to get the ball rolling. So rather than going, oh, let's, you know, ask person X that I don't really know, let's, let's keep it close to home. Renard is a mate of mine um, ever since... Gosh, yes. I mean, very early days, I went over to Belgium, signed um, some music from him to put out on XL, and then remixed it in his living room where you couldn't really live. All you, It just contained keyboards and amps and speakers, and there was no room for anything other than music making in his living room. And that's Renard. You know, music runs through his, his blood. He, again, he's an incredibly passionate and enthusiastic um, chap. And uh, like... Uh, Daniel Miller, he's you know, funnily enough, Renard only days ago was was DJing in at Bergheim in, in in Berlin. So he's another one, grey haired dude, 
been in the game decades, still out there, still doing it. Yeah, I think fantastic. He's, I think he's got even as we speak. I think he's probably playing XOYO. Uh, it, I think he's doing a Christmas or a New Year gig. New Year gig. You it, know, he, it, and he's so inspiring in that way. It for, wouldn't surprise me at all. It, I mean, he knows that he's. Some of his ideas are a bit crazy, and he knows that. <laughs> so he knows that some of the stuff he suggests. Okay, Nick, what about this? I know. Call me crazy. I think I'm crazy. Am I crazy? I probably am. You know, you know this kind of uh, <laughs> kind of vibe that he gives off. Where you know, and some of it is just childlike enthusiasm. But we love him for that. You oh, know, yes. and the industry needs people like Renard. You know? Yes, absolutely. The good old fashioned, good old fashioned A and R guy. You know yeah. that that is kind of missing from from I think from uh, you know that that real character yeah. that you have in A and R. You know the James Lavelles yeah. of, of this world. And yeah. Renard is as is absolutely incredible and yeah. such a an honour and a, pr- a pleasure to meet him. And I thank you for that, Nick. Ah, and good. I found him incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Just in terms of, I mean, he's not that much older than me, but like um, w- when I get to that age, I want to be. I want to be like that. Absolutely. I want to be that. Like he was. He was like. You know, all of these young, dumb and full of cum, you know, electronic fans and DJs and stuff that just disappear at three o'clock in the morning. No, you know, between four and six a.m. That's when the magic happens. You know, he's and he's just and he's always and I love the story of him having a triple bypass. Was it or something? Is that? Well, that's what we're going to hear. That was the clip that I've I've picked out, man. We've got to hear that. This is the gem of the of the Renard episode. It's him talking about literally, you know, going from the hospital bed. To the rave, you know, in 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 a time spell of mere hours, uh, and and you know, this is this is what Renault Art's all about. Should we hear the clip, man? I'm just imagining him in the in the middle of a dance floor in this banging techno club with one of those green smocks on, with a slit down the back, just raving yeah. in the middle of the dance floor like that. I didn't I didn't have time to change. But fuck it, fuck it. Who cares? Call me crazy. Yes, the gold member of dance music. Here yeah. we go. I uh, had an operation not long ago. You know, I could have been dead. Mm. Know, blah blah blah. Mm. So, you know, I had you know, which is stems, you know. So I went from the operation table to a party. Honest to God, I'm not lying. <laughs> you just pointed at your heart, then? Did you have like a, like a heart yeah, stents or something? Stents. Oh, stents. Oh, okay. You know, so this is serious. Like this is well, yeah. serious. I'm still alive. Anyway, yeah. but you but, were you were pondering whether you would survive. No, not that bad. But it could, if if they wouldn't have find it, I could have been dead. You know, I was walking around for one uh, one year. That it, you have seen me. I couldn't walk from here to there without pain. Blah blah. Long story. Anyway, operation table <laughs> finished. <laughs> Direct to club. Honest to God. Stay wow. there. T- yeah. Wow. T- till seven o'clock in the morning. Sabine is with me. Untold is playing again. Seven o'clock in the morning. That place is. Teaming. Which hot? Where were you? In Ghent at an RNS party. Okay. You know, I yeah. play, because I played three hours untold, you know, and it was seven o'clock in the morning. You played a three hour set yeah. within 24 hours of being on the oh, opera? No, uh, uh, even less, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, right. Whoa. Okay, respect. No, 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 no. Redefining <laughs> hardcore. Yeah. And uh, untold esteeming. People are dancing. Yeah. Perfect. The way I want a party. Right. You know, no joke. No compromise. So Sabine is a little bit worried. No. Mm, I was going to say, yeah. wasn't, she, wasn't she going? No, she wasn't. You, you said, should rest. You yeah, know. you should rest. You should, should come and say, no, 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 no. We're still going to go for an hour. We're going to miss some records. You know, let Whoa. me die here. You know, it's perfect. <laughs> you know, let me die. Don't, don't worry about it. It. And and to be very honest, when I turned 58, she told me, you know what is important for you now? And I was evaluating all things. And that's being at nightclub or seeing a very good band at that moment where it's happening. Yeah. Where people and, and, and the guys... Energy and... Yeah, when it's, it's one's energy. 
Yeah. And they will not get me home before, you know, I go for, you know, I'm 58, I party for three days. <laughs> you know, I, I, I go. But, you know, I watch drinks and I don't do drugs. Maybe, you know, whatever. But no drugs, be careful, vodka, a lot of water. And I go and I see everybody like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's more, it's more or less natural, just natural energy and endorphins and, it's, and it's, your it's natural enthusiasm um, that yeah. are keeping it's you that, going through it's this. It's that moment which is so beautiful. So there you have the incredibly inspiring Renard van der Papelera and uh, going from hospital bed to a rave somewhere in um, in Europe. What what an incredible guy! So yeah. so inspiring. And speaking of inspiring, what would be the tune that a man like that would pick to save the world? I, I'm going to go back to Marvin Gaye because he, he's a very special musician, artist in my life that really, you know, he's so emotional. So I'm, I'm going to go for, um, what are we right here? Yeah, Inner City Blues. I was talking earlier about the holistic nature of our guests and how I love that. And um, even towards the top of this special, I was speaking about one of the things that I really, really love about this uh, about this incredible podcast is that I get to learn so much about not just people that I know, but obviously the people that I don't know and people that I might have met or interviewed and not really gone deep enough into. And Mike Pickering was such a great example of this. So I think hand on heart, most of us being honest, would know Mike, Mike Pickering as I did as uh, a, um, a resident of Manchester's most famous club yep. uh, and the tall one in M people. Mm. And I think that's as far as most people's knowledge went. But then doing a show like this and talking in a, in a desert island discsy way with these people and then you you find out that Mike was was an A&R guy at Factory and yeah. that he signed the Happy Mondays yeah. and that he signed Calvin Harris who I absolutely love and he and he signed Kasabian whose demo I famously or infamously found in a bin at uh, XFM thrown away by uh, some idiot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry if you were the person who threw that away, but come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it was just, it was wonderful finding out the, the, the you know, going into the, the life of such an unsung hero of music. And he's very, he's incredibly entertaining, I think, Mike, as well. You know, so there's that, you know, very humorous, droll, a sort of droll northern humour that that came through in this episode. And we we had a really good laugh. And uh, it is one of my, it, it was probably my favourite episode of the first series. Um, or it was my favourite episode of the whole lot, I think, until David Rodigan came along. Uh, you know, so it was really enjoyable. And uh, yes, and the, the clip I've picked is indeed, uh, it's go, taking him back to the, the early days and how he got to, to get involved with Factory. And like um, several anecdotes that we hear uh, from, from our guests, the role that Chance plays, where you just find yourself happening to talk to somebody that and in a weird 
scenario and then that becomes the start of a beautiful friendship so um, yeah yeah let's check this clip about how uh, Mike uh, and Rob Gretton first met I'd met Rob Gretton who was manager of Joy Division um, at, Man- at Man City away game we were both Man City fans and we were being chased by skinheads at a Nottingham Forest game um, and we ended up hiding in a bush in this old woman's garden. And it, when they got you into music, yeah. When we got, he just went Rob Gretton with and Sean. And I went Mike Pickering Stockport. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the beginning of a very, 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 very long, beautiful it's friendship. It's like a scene out of This Is England. Isn't it? Oh yeah, it, is, it was. It is. And um, and um, he saw it, and I, I, I was just following this band around because I. I'd been going to the Electric Circus, which, you know, there's the Pistols, Ramones, Clash, Jam, and supporting the Ramones, that was amazing, because one night supporting the Ramones, this band came on, they're all wearing, the singer's wearing a Fred Perry shirt, and they sang Take Me to the River, Al Green, and I was like, these are amazing, it was a talking heads. Oh, wow. Right. You know, just one of their first gigs in a little club. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, television, all those kind of bands. Yeah. So, you know, you could go out all week in Manchester and just see great bands. And um, and you were there at exactly the right, right time. time. I'm so jealous. I I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. And so and I yeah. so I missed all that. You no, know, I it, came it, into it, post-punk. It was know. an incredible, incredible time. Martin and I went to everything. But Rob, I saw Rob, because uh, he was DJing at Rafters, and he went, I read that thing in that fanzine. It's great. You should hang around with us more. And... And uh, and so that, you know, became part of Factory. Mike Pickering, legendary DJ, music maker, composer and music and A&R guy and like one of these, like a vapour in the music industry that just is always, he's almost omnipresent. And, uh, you know, you talked about connections and weird things happening. I mean, one, one of my favourite bits in, in this was how he was it Kasabian or Calvin Harris that he heard it while he was talking to an A&R guy on the phone they asked and Calvin he heard, Harris that Calvin, one. and he heard it in the background he goes yes. what's that you're listening to and he goes oh it's just uh, some yeah. songwriter from yeah. like Scotland that I'm not really that into well you know can you send it to me because I really like it he, he picked up on a, on a vibe and that's the thing his his radar is up all the time and that's the same with, with a lot of these guys just like Daniel Miller there as we heard just radar up shall I check out this support act yeah, yeah why not there might be something there you never know and that was Depeche Mode and, and Mike just heard something in the background oh that's pretty good what's that all about and I, and I do think that a lot of these industry leading characters that we talk to they just have their antennae flashing or whatever or, you know they're always looking for, for something new and interesting they know that you, you never know where you might find it so yeah yes. an enviable an enviable pair of antennae on that <laughs> man so what would Mike Pickering choose to as the tune to save the world you know having listen to and love so many records when I when I when the question was put to me it's got to be the first one that springs to mind and and it's also the record that we used to play as the the encore in the Hacienda every Friday night and that's um, Someday by C.C. Rogers Um, just a beautiful beautiful record
Prince. So having done Mary Ann Hobbs, a, uh, a modern legend in terms of broadcasting, it was nice to speak to a real old school legend. Now, Tony Prince was a special one for me uh, because I'm such a huge fan of the DMC mixing championships yeah. and, um, you know, going to New York to see DJ Craze uh, win Actually, I think DJ Dexter should have won that one, but that's an, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, just that's a spin-off going, podcast. Yeah, yeah go, going to see something Eddie's, like that. Eddie's great DMC <laughs> robberies, great, volume one. Yeah, great number twos. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, that was you know that one one of one of my favourite experiences, really. You know, in terms of of, of travelling and, and seeing amazing things in yeah. uh, in in what we call broadly call dance music. And yes, this man is uh, is some somebody that uh, that had a finger in so many pies mm. in uh, obviously the DMCs mm. uh, in Mixmag you know he started mm. the end the DMCs that's, he started Mixmag right. he, he basically started the whole kind of mashup thing yeah. and he was and I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say this the first superstar DJ in in the UK I mean yeah. in, and maybe even in the world you know he was the first he was one of the very first people to play records in a in a live club environment. Yep. And 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 of course it was special for you because you had this brilliant fanboy moment, didn't you? I did. Well, I've had a, a couple of those. I mean, and I am I am sort of fans of of many of the people who who've been uh, guests. And yes, I was growing up as a kid uh, in Porter's Head, and I remember I used to listen to him on Radio Luxembourg on a Friday evening, uh, and and he'd do his you know sort of uh, disco import show and it would the signal would come in and, <laughs> and go out and you know and all the rest of it and i won a competition once um by uh, sending in something to the show and he uh, or his assistant or whatever sent me a, a, t- a spanking brand new sam 12 inch single um an import a disco import kind of record uh, and yeah i brought in that 12 inch got him to sign it and it even had the little compliment slip in it still you know from uh, when he when it had been sent out to me, so that was nice. Yeah, that was a lovely thing, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. very very heartwarming. And I yeah. I want to really rewind the clock. It's it was just fascinating getting a kind of a history lesson in in where DJing started, mm. where it actually properly started. I'm not talking about Danny Rampling starting Sherm or or, or or that kind of thing. I'm talking about way back yeah. post war mm. where music was just live yes. and and the idea of playing a record in a in a in a dance in a dance room uh, dance a ballroom yeah. environment where there's couples dancing was unheard of yeah. and when he started doing that it was really interesting how you know politically it was a real no no like yeah. you had the musicians union who wanted to keep music live yeah. totally pushing up against it and just That's going right. no this is this is totally wrong yes. and and so i want to go back to the story of of how DJing first started and Tony's involvement with that and with the, um, the the pushback that he got from the Musicians' Union. This is a fascinating story. So there we are. I'm now a professional. Then one night, the DJ who'd been giving us a break, you know, every 15-piece band has got to have half an hour at the bar every night. And this guy who'd been playing the records, he never spoke in the mic. He just played records and he looked a bit of a geek. You know, he had glasses mm. on in... Short back in the sides haircut, and he hadn't shown up. So the manager came up to me and says, uh, I'm still Tommy, by the way. Mm. Tommy, would you like to stand in for him? I'll give you another £2 a night. 
You're not kidding, of course I would. So now I'm rich. Not only am I rich, I'm singing with a 15-piece band and I'm playing all the music I love mm. and making that floor fill. Mm. And um, so I became a DJ. And within months, we got moved down to Bristol to another new ballroom. Mm. And that's when the Musicians' Union came to see us to make sure all the musicians were getting the right kind of wages and, mm. and uh, terms. Mm. And the secretary came to me and he said, you're playing records all day. I mean, this ballroom in Bristol, I was doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, lunchtime. Sessions at night, different kinds of sessions. Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening and Sunday club. The only night I got off was on Wednesday because it was a private function when they didn't have a private function. So I was working every hour God gave me, but I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. I just couldn't get a better lifestyle, you know. Well, I mean, the idea of a, a club that's open Monday to Friday every lunchtime is, is pretty interesting. That's, that's precursor to Ibiza. Well, yeah. It, actually, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't it, Don't forget the cavern used to do that in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah they opened at lunchtime. Every lunchtime, yeah. But that's why you're here, yeah. Tony, ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but we're Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, we were in Bristol. The secretary came to see me. He said, I'll get you more money. You should be getting more than this. Yeah. Two weeks later, I get a letter back saying it's been brought to my attention. You're breaking union rules. Keep music live. Records are putting our members out of work because before records, when the band had a break, a trio played live music. Yeah. That's obviously. It was just live all night. And I always thought that maybe top-ranking Mecca wanted records because it was cheaper than trios, mm. but that wasn't the case. Mm. Gary Brown, who ran Top Rank, told me years later, no, it wasn't to save money on trios, Tony. He said it was because the people wanted the records. Yeah. You saw how the floor filled when you came round on that revolving stage and the yep. band went off. Mm. They'd cheer me as I came round with the records. When I'd finished my set and went round, the big band came round, they'd boo the big band. It was terribly <laughs> embarrassing. Oh, that's uncomfortable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that was it. Um, I was used as a test case in Bristol. Yeah. Top Rank used me as a test case. We had a big union meeting and there were about 110 musicians there. Yeah. We all put our cases forward and the case I put forward was, listen, DJs don't necessarily know how to play chords. They can't play drums. But I promise you, in their soul, they are musicians. Mm. I think you should embrace DJs into the union. Mm. How else are you going to control how much music they play? Mm. If you uh, divorce yourself from the DJ industry, you're going to create one hell of a problem. So it was voted. I mean, Top Rank said, you know, the danger is if you throw Tony out of the union, you're going to uh, look forward to the band losing certain nights, uh, the big band being put down to a 10-piece. This is all coming if you don't control the DJs. But they voted, and they were all musicians in that room, and 100 to 10 voted for me to leave the union. And they were sympathetic and said, if you ever want to rejoin the union, a £50 fine will do it. Mm. I said, I don't somehow think I'll ever be rejoining the MU. Mm. And I didn't. Mm. Fascinating stuff from Tony Prince, one of the, the founding fathers of, of DJ culture. Uh, and uh, without further ado, let's move on to hearing what tune Tony would pick to save the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for his first appearance on our show tonight, Elvis Presley.
Oakenfold. Now we're heading into series two yeah. of Trailblazers. And what a way to kick things off with oh. uh, a man who was at one time the biggest DJ in the world. For sure, for sure. So Paul Oakenfold, yes, a great guest. And, and what impressed me about uh, Oki was the multiple times that he's been at the front of, of interesting, dynamic stuff. So Ibiza, uh, he was there kind of propagating, creating, bringing Ibiza as a, a dance music destination into the mainstream. So he was there. He was right on the pulse with the rap explosion in the sort of mid-80s, 85, 86, 87 time. He was working on those records, Profile and some killer rap records came through on Champion. He was there. When um, kind of before the Super Club era, uh, he was he was kind of carving a route which which it kind of enabled super club culture to to happen and he was a resident at cream right in the heart of it and then vegas he had a dj residency in vegas before most big name uk or european guys had ever played there so again and again yeah even did the orchestral thing way before tommy and all of that were on it absolutely he's he's been the arrowhead uh, the entry point for so many different things yeah. in in our you know in the dance music culture that that we love and and with all of those things impressive as they are there's one thing uh, which which uh, which I would want to uh, remind people about which is that he was the first DJ to produce a record to actually be asked to produce a pop record you know that again that was an unheard of thing mm. a, a producer produced a record yeah. a DJ played records in clubs and at gigs yeah the two did not meet yeah. until Paul Oakenfold came along and got asked by, I guess, Tony Wilson and by Mike Pickering to... Uh, to do the to, Happy Mondays, to, right? To produce Happy Mondays, Step On, and, and all the rest of it, to produce Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches. Yeah. And he, what, what an amazing record, made better by his incredible ear for a hook. Absolutely amazing. So, what uh, what are we going to? Which clip are we going to hear? Yeah, yeah. I I just think that that being at the front end of all of this sort of interesting and exciting stuff doesn't happen by chance. Really, uh, there's chance plays its part. But I think underpinning Paul Oakenfold's success is his work ethic. Uh, he just grafts, works, gets, makes sure that he gets into the right positions at the right time um, and and the success follows so yeah a little clip about him when he was working for Champion Records early days um, and uh, yeah he's telling us about uh, what that involved We were a small independent label in Holston that competed uh, with the, the, the major record companies who would have these offsprings of dance labels FFRR yeah. was arguably our biggest competition mm. and we were we couldn't compete in every way possible but you were running that out of just a, a house in Holston so we were in a house in Holston I was that this time living in Carshorton a first flat I'd got on my own yep you'd have to get a train a bus and a tube to get home so my so-called office was in a bedroom upstairs in a two-up house mm. so I would be on the floor packing the records, sending them out, doing what you do. And I had a pull-out sofa. So I used to literally sleep in the office because it just made more sense rather than trying to get home. So probably three days in a week, I'd sleep 
on a pull-out sofa in the office and used to love it. Absolutely. We've all been there. We've all been there, right? But this is what I go back to with a work ethic. Yeah, Yeah. clearly. You can't expect nothing for free. If you want to become the best at anything you do, you have to put the work in. Paul Oakenfold, one of our hugest guests on Trailblazers and what would the biggest DJ in the world choose to save the world? I would sum it up with Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, well... He made that record 30 years ago and we're still fucking talking about the same things. So... That to me is, let them destroy it. I, I, I wow. you know, we'd, we, we will destroy ourselves. Well, so, we are clearly uh, already destroying it. Yeah, that's yeah. a very, very, very so, good point. You know, so, it, it's, it's, you know, there are, I don't think there is one song that can save the world, no. but I think there's a one song that asks you the question we need to save the world, not aliens. And it's Marvin Gaye, what's going on? What the fuck is going on with us? What are we doing? We're fucking everything up and we need to get it together because we will fuck it up for our children. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's I, that close. Yeah, absolutely, now, yeah. Look, at, look what's going on in the oceans. Look what's going on with climate change. I mean, you know, how, how close do we need it to go before someone says, come on, enough's enough. Oh, what's going on? David Rodigan. Now, the second guest in Series 2, wow, this was a big moment for me. David Rodigan. Ah! Oh my gosh! Now we talked about Renard van der Papelera from RNS being insp- being inspiring. What about this man, David Rodigan? You know, a, a, a man who is uh, surely a grandfather, bouncing around on stages all over the world um, <laughs> like he's a teenager. Yeah, the guy is so inspiring. I mean, <clears throat> I didn't think that we would top, you know, the Gary Newman and the Mike Pickering podcast, but. I think with the greatest respect to every guest that we've had, and they've all been in their own way, absolutely wonderful. Yes. Um, I think that both you and I, judging by the smile on your face yeah. right now, yeah, yeah. would pick David Rodigan as our best as podcast. As our favourite yeah. so far, yes, because it had it all. It had the passion, the commitment, the, the historical depth. Um, and, and the storytelling. And the storytelling. The storytelling is amazing. Obviously, David, obviously, when he DJs in front of a crowd, he tells stories. So that's that's something that puts him in a different place to lots of the other DJs that are out there. You know, he will get on the mic and say, "This is what happened in September yeah. nineteen eighty three or yeah. whatever." You know, and I had a I had a mind blowing moment at Epiphany in in this actually not not quite as uh, as profound as the one that I had with uh, with Gary Newman right. uh, on on the radio. But when I talked to him, when we talked to him about uh, um, the first time that i saw him at a festival yeah. was at the secret garden party yeah. which as you know is something that i Close was, was, was involved always yeah. involved with yeah and uh, and and started and um i had no idea that that was his first festival yeah and that you know freddie my 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 chum who you know we, we basically you know put the, put the thing together yeah um had booked him mm. for his first festival and like i thought he was a festival veteran i mean he he was 
he was approaching that gig like he'd done a million festivals, and that's what I just assumed. But that was his first ever one. That was his entry point to, uh, to his entry point to festivals. wasn't a festival; it was a party, and mm. that's that was incredibly heartwarming for me. And he was very honest, wasn't he, about saying how nervous he was, uh, you know, before playing there. And so again, you you know, we saw behind behind the scenes a little bit because sometimes you just see an artist or a DJ on stage bouncing around, exuding confidence, and you think, gosh, these this guy can do anything but then David was like yeah I was I was really nervous before I played that gig of course the difficulty here is going to be uh, which clip to play because there are so many incredible stories so many anecdotes and yeah so I feel as though um, let's let's try to avoid the one where you outthought him uh, you outspotted him on two occasions I wasn't going to go for that I wasn't, remember, I wasn't even going to mention Eddie to be honest it was, there was some if you I tell you you've got to listen to the whole thing but here's a, just a little clip which Nick will tell you about but there was a couple of moments where where Rodders, bless him, I uh, just couldn't think of a particular sample or of, a, of something something where, you know, artist a little sample, name, an artist name, name or whatever, whatever. And, and of one of his records, mm. and you got it each time. That's Absolutely funny. brilliant. So <laughs> what? which one of these incredible uh, myriad of amazing stories are we going to play? Yeah, yeah. Well, you said uh, it was a bit mind-blowing uh, for you talking about uh, Secret Garden Party and Rodigan and all of that sort of thing. So uh, keeping with the, the mind all Altering uh, theme. Let's uh, let's hear from David about uh, some of his uh, rather humorous experiences down in Jamaica, encountering some mind-altering substances. <laughs> Red eyes. Here we come. It was with Burning Spear. I literally, uh, me, Mo Claridge, and Dave Henley hired a car and we drove from Kingston on Saturday morning up to Ocho Rios, and we we're going to spend the weekend up there. And uh, my, of course, ambition, the sole reason for me going up there was to go to um, uh, St. Anne's Bay, which is where Burning Spear was. And he had a, the, Saint, the Burning Spear uh, youth lawn, a public community centre that he'd built. And um, I went there in the hope, because there was no phone calls, you couldn't make any arrangement, you just hoped that you'd meet people. And you'd turn up with like a real... T- well, I had a little tape recorder. A little tape recorder yeah, thing yeah. and hope for the best. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And okay. I did. And I did. And I went to the um, Marcus Garvey uh, Lawn uh, Community Centre right. that he'd built. And um, word went out and he turned up. He arrived. And and this is burning spear. I was like, oh my, you know, I've actually got to meet Winston Rodney. And he was very friendly and we began the interview and he built a big spliff and he had a red and black T-shirt on, hoop T-shirt. And um, he built the spliff and um, he asked me if I'd like to smoke some of it. And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I did. And within 10 minutes, the interview had descended into complete mayhem (laughs) because I was on the grass... Spready in, in, in more ways. In more ways. <laughs> That's the joke of the show, Nick. Oh, thank you. You're the man of the match. <laughs> and in the end, I was squatting down like squat a madras. It was like you know Peter Cook and Dudley Moore squat a madras. <laughs> and there I was, you know, cross-legged and trying to string a question together, and laughing at myself, and laughing and giggling, and and burning spear standing above me, looking down at me, saying. You're red. <laughs> Which is a Jamaican expression for you're blocked, you're high, beyond yeah. belief. Yeah. So the interview oh. was a complete unmitigated disaster um, because I couldn't even string questions together. 
You've got red. Oh. Yeah, you're red. <laughs> you're red. You're red because my eyes look yes. like a roadmap. Yes, of course. And of course, the thing was that I was smoking pure Jamaican ganja. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't some bushweed from Shepherd's Bush. You know, yeah, Sense Emilia. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or Brixton. It was the real thing. And uh, it, it took my head off, um, which eventually led me to, uh, a few years later, never smoking again. I was in, a, in Kingston, leaving to go to Ocherias. This is in the late 80s. And I, I built a spliff in, in the front seat of this Mitsubishi pickup truck. And Arthur Reed, if, you, if you're driving, thank you. <laughs> because by the time I'd finished this spliff, I was flying to Ocherias. I wasn't driving. Well, I wasn't driving anyway. And it got so bad that he had to stop the Mitsubishi truck. It was a pickup truck. And lay me in the back <laughs> on this tartan blanket. <laughs> and I lay in the back of the Mitsubishi pickup truck. Driving to Ocherias through Fern Gully, and I was hallucinating like nobody's business. I was flying. I mean, I was up with the gods. You're flying through wow. time and space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Who had nothing on me. Yeah. I was in the TARDIS. In fact, I'd left the TARDIS behind me because remember, I'd played in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there I was. And by the time I landed in Ocherias, uh, I had a meeting with John Burroughs, who was my big cheese, the big boss of the Capital Radio Jazz Festival. And we're supposed to have a proper public proper meeting up there to discuss the lineup who we're going to go and Arthur propped me up in the passenger seat of the car and he said I'll go and get him and John came out and he's a Yorkshireman John if you're listening and he said oh David you don't look too healthy there lad you know white. you're very pasty looking what's up with you eyes a bit red <laughs> I said I'm being of Uncle Dick you know uh, he said, oh, well, listen, don't worry about me, Tina. And, and I went to my hotel, and I literally had to crash out in there, and then Arthur had to sort of wash me down with, with cold water. I was, I mean, it was bonkers. And, and I realised then that this was, uh, this was a Not game I had to quit. Okay. I never smoked again. The incredible and most excellent member of the British Empire, uh, I think even most excellent order of the British Empire, uh, David Rodigan, uh, MBE, the most incredible raconteur. And you, if you haven't listened to the whole podcast, you really do. And of course, at the end of every single one, we always ask our guests what tune that they would pick to save the world from uh, from marauding aliens. And with every single person, it, it's it's a wonderful chance to to play a tune that really basically means the world to you um but i feel as though if this was a serious scenario and the world actually had to be saved i feel as though everybody every guest that we've talked to would have provided a forlorn hope you know like a you know one of those georgian charges into the into the guns where you know you know you're going to die but with david rodigan hand on heart i truly believed that if we were in this scenario the tune that David picked to save the world would actually save the world. I would say that it has to be a song that the whole world knows. We spoke earlier of the power of Bob Marley and what he's done with his music and his lyrics, as did Dylan and many other great rock stars. But there's one song that Bob Marley wrote when he was a teenager at Studio One and recorded as a Scar record, and it was an absolutely incredible record then. And if you listen to the Scar version and listen to the version that the whole world knows, you'll, you'll hear the difference. But within it is the incredible message, and it's so simple and it's so true that without love, we have nothing. We have to forgive. 
We have to move on. We cannot hold resentments. We cannot bear grudges. And Bob Marley believed that devoutly. And that's why he wrote One Love. And I would say to the aliens, please listen to the message of Bob Marley, because it's all about love. One love, one heart. Let's get together and feel all right. One Stephen Malander. So our next guest is, well, personally, a real special one for me because this is, and I think it's fair in saying this, this is one of my heroes rather than one of your heroes. And oh, it was, sure, sure. it was interesting how this came to be. It was, you know, I, I, I had to push for this hmm. um, because, you know, Cabaret Voltaire uh, means a lot to me, but didn't mean that much to you because you came not, not, you know, it's not not a value judgment because because you came at at it from a from different a different angle. angle that's right and um so you know i i saw cabaret voltaire uh like they blew my mind and i, I bought those records with my uh, thatcher's britain doll money at the time and they were just one of, i thought that they were one of the greatest uh, electronic bands and those real envelope pushers they the first time I ever heard a, a, a what became known as a sample yeah. was on a ca- early Cabaret Voltaire record. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was right. I guess if you think about those very first kind of like big audio dynamite, mm-hmm. you know, it's that kind of era of, of 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 dance music before samples were even called samples. It was kind of just found sound. It yep. was just like nicking a clip of a film or yep. nicking a a bit of news footage or nicking a just a, a, a something that you you've recorded out in yeah. in in the world. Yeah, and in Introducing it to a record, yeah. you know, and all records were produced in studios and, 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 and it was a closed environment. And suddenly this opened up record production to sounds that could be from anywhere. Yes. It was, it, and so it was very important for me, for us to, to talk to Mal from Cabaret Voltaire. And um, how, how, did it, how did it go for you now yeah, that you've, yeah, it, with it, the benefit it, of hindsight? Yeah, yeah, good, man. I mean, you know, we, we say it again and again, and these, these uh, conversations are about learning, they're about opening ourselves up to new information and meeting new people and and obviously it's it's thoroughly enjoyable uh, and and Mal had some uh, entertaining anecdotes as well um, which and, and one of them uh, I've, I've picked out actually was made me made me smile as he was talking about um, being on tour in America and uh, his experience of Prince which was uh, you know maybe slightly different to uh, to um, to to what we uh, uh, mere mortals, uh, you know, have experienced a print. So let's let's hear what uh, what Mal um, experienced when he was uh, on tour uh, many years ago. You know, he played at the, his club in uh, Minneapolis, and he came, it was great because Prince came to the sound check, which was really funny. There was this little silhouette. I shouldn't say that because he was small, but a little silhouette at the back, you know, and it was like, oh my god, Prince is here. And we're doing the sound check, and we were like, oh wow. And then when we spoke to the barmaid, you know the so kind of the staff afterwards they went was that Prince they went oh yeah he's always turning up he's really annoying he comes to check on the stock behind the bar and all this <laughs> it was like all of a sudden this kind of godlike sort of 
Paisley Park figure was kind of down to, as far as the bar staff was, you know, was concerned, he was just this bloke who used to turn up and sort Bit of annoy them. The ass, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it was, for us it was like great. So it was brilliant playing in his club. And that was part of a US tour? That yeah, you did, we were touring the US and we, and we played there because, it, you know, it's where he filmed Purple Rain. Star Wars fly, neighbors just shine it on. But if a night falls and a bomb falls, will everybody see the dawn time? Trailblazers. Paul Van Dyke. Our next guest on Trailblazers was a very interesting one for me and uh and very apt to follow Stephen Malander, aka Mal from Cabaret Voltaire, who was a hero. Uh, who was a hero for me and uh, not it didn't really feature in in Nick's life as mm. as, as we mentioned and our, our next guest I guess the tables would turn so mm. you know this is this is someone for whom from a from a genre trance that yeah. I didn't really that I you know I, I like I said to him I, I own three I bought huh. three trance records one of them was, was hold by on, him hold on you told him it was four have you, have you <laughs> flogged have you flogged one of your trance records I'm pretty sure it was three but oh, I might, okay. my memory is slightly four. hazy but but one of them is definitely you know, one of them was Ferry Corsten, one yeah, of them was Paul Van Dyke. Uh, one of them was a uh, Paul Van Dyke okay. tune. Um, but of course, trance is a is a genre that you were very active in, and yeah. you had a lot of success in A and R with. That's right, exactly. So for sure, Paul Van Dyke was, uh, and the records that he'd made and and mixed were big records for me. Particularly, um, there was a, a, a kind of golden era for me. Uh, I was running Positiva. We had our monthly uh, nights that were at Bagley's Warehouse, and we also did a monthly thing at Minister his sound and and the, the kind of records he was making would literally tear the roof off you know in those environments you drop for an angel and people would be going completely you know <laughs> yeah, loopy absolutely so, I, I and and you know people at trance uh, <laughs> to trance raves quite suggestible um the the, <laughs> the the thing that i really liked about this episode was seeing dance music from such an international perspective you know mm. because we talked to most to to, to uh, mostly uh, british people which i've got to dive in here this is something that we we want to 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 change a little bit as as we move forward with trailblazers isn't it we do want to get some more international voices uh, as our guests so yeah, just so, just worth mentioning that yeah absolutely we, we you know we've got plans to go to france and pick up a, hopefully a couple of of uh, real um, big trailblazers from France, and yeah. we, we and we really want to go to America uh, and talk to Coxie and to possibly to Calvin Harris. So we'll we'll see how that goes for yeah. the next for the next season. But mm. it was really interesting for me to get a um, not just an international angle, but to see a thing that you know and love mm. from a fresh angle yeah. from from really some really different a really different perspective yes. is a rare, very refreshing thing and yeah. seeing dance music seeing the dance music bubble through the eyes of someone like Paul Van Dyke from a from a genre that I for genre that I don't really know very yeah. much was incredibly refreshing and very interesting for me and the, and the overriding sense that I got from Paul was of passion yeah. of of a passion that was ignited in communist east Germany yep. and was ignited by um, the Smiths yep. who, who were the band that played at my at Freshers, fresh, my Freshers Ball yep. in, my, in my first week at university yep. and I, so I feel as though we connected on, on that and yep. um, I just thought that he was so, so musical yep. and so, so passionate 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, the clip I've chosen, actually, uh, is is one uh, that, that all resonated with me because, of course, it, it just it's a, it's also got a, a, a sense of of just um, what's the word for it? Naive, childlike kind of fun and enthusiasm. The, um, the French have a lovely word for that, which which is where we get naivety. It's naivete yeah. with with that acute accent on yeah. the E. It's, it's a beautiful word. It, it works even better than naivete. Naivety. Yeah. Naivete. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so let's have a listen to Paul Van Dyke, who was uh, spending quite a bit of time in, in New York. And uh, let's hear what he got, got up to with the New York Club Kids um, from time to time. You know, they called themselves the New York Club Kids. Yeah. And, um, and it was just like crazy stuff. There was this thing we did. So you remember those old like uh, ghetto blasters, blasters from the 80s. Yeah, so, yeah. so they had one of those. So we yeah. basically, we did kind of, it was like rave and run. Okay. That's what it was <laughs> called. So we would go to some public place, put on the, the, the ghetto blaster, play our electronic techno music, dance the shit out of it until the police came and then run and away. And then run away. And go to the next <laughs> Rave and run. And, I love that. And I remember there was, there was a huge ice cream store right on Times Square where I almost got arrested because I was kind of just kind of, you know, like the last one getting out. The last one to and, run. Mm. And my trick was to just like order some ice cream. So I kind of like, oh, I'm just a customer, guys. Just a customer. I'm just having ice cream. Yeah. Bye-bye. So, but it was like... I'm a tourist. I'm just getting yeah. some ice cream. Yeah, yeah. just... <laughs> No, oh, but fantastic. really, they were like they, they were like some crazy fun times there. The very passionate and extremely likable Paul Van Dyke, uh, really looking at things from such a, a fresh angle. I, <laughs> I loved talking to him. And so, hey, hey, should we do a bit of Raven Run sometime, Eddie? Ourselves? <laughs> should we do one? <laughs> tempting, tempting. tempting. <laughs> let's co- let's consider it. <laughs> Something for 2019. So, similarly to Paul Oakenvold, uh, Paul Van Dyke was. Uh, shared that mantle of number one DJ in the world. Yep. So what would the number one DJ in the world, this one, pick as the tune to save the world? In order to bring that across and explain what humans emotionally in a positive way are capable of, I would say it has to be a piece of music by Luke Howard and most likely a track called CB. And why, why Luke Howard and why this track? My wife actually introduced me to the music of Luke Howard. You know, I didn't really sort of like hear about this. And she was like playing this. And I was like, she's like, what is this beautiful music? What, what is this? It's like, because, you know, it is music. It's kind of like really lush. It's kind of like a piano and, 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 and you kind of feel like it's in the background, but you will notice you stop talking. You will be sucked into the music and the, and the emotions of this music. And you will just like simply, I don't know, be captured by it. And I think there's so much emotion in that. There's so much passion in that. And I believe that will be something that on the big scope of what we are as the human race will be a good example of showing the aliens, leave us alive. Oh, man.
Middleton. So let me let me tell you about how the Tom Middleton one happened. Uh, Tom and I are old friends. I guess this is the wheel turning full st- circle because the very first one was. Um, you know, Nick's suggesting a good friend of his, Renart from RNS, to, to come and talk to us. And so uh, the last one is a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Middleton. And I, so I was having lunch with him and we were just chatting. We were catching up for the first time in ages. And we, we, we got talking about trailblazers. And he was saying what a great idea it was and that, you know, he, he, he loved the whole idea of it. And, and then I, I talked about this beautiful moment, one of my favourite moments. I think if I had to just pick one moment from the whole thing mm. it would be the moment in the first one mm. where i'm sat in the studio and i'm looking at my friend the you the man that signed the prodigy yeah. with this guy that i know this absolute legend renard van der papillera mm. uh, i'm looking at the man who signed the prodigy and the man who signed apex twin and you know there's this moment where you admitted that you that you passed on Apex mm. Twin and you gave me sure. that cassette. Sure. And there's this moment where you two just gave each other a massive hug of like, you know, I just said, you can't win them all. Like you can't, it would have been unfair. Mm. The, the dance music gods wouldn't have let you have both the Prodigy and, you know, Apex Twin. That would have just be too much. And there was this lovely moment where I'm just seeing these, these two absolute heroes, one who I know, one who I don't, both whom I love, just having this lovely man hug mm. and it was a very mm. heartwarming yeah, heartwarming moment for me yeah. so i was telling him about this and then and then he goes do you know who gave renart that demo and i was like no he goes it was me and i was like oh sh- shit really and he goes yeah that was i you know and then he explained that whole story of of being you know a, a cornish you know student yeah. or whatever yeah, and getting yeah. into dance music and then discovering richard james and uh, being involved and, you know, uh, signing him. Yeah. Being involved in the very first deal that, uh, that Aphex Twin, as it, became, as it yes. became known, was involved with. And yeah. so I, I just called you up straight away. I, I took one f- step out of this um, Thai restaurant yeah. and called you up straight away and just went, Nick, 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 we've got to get Tom Middleton on. This is amazing. You know, he, <laughs> he actually discovered the Aphex Twin. And yeah. you, you, I think he was sort of bowled away by my uh, enthusiasm <laughs> yes, at the time. absolutely. And um, and so which uh, this was another really good one. Um, he's such a great raconteur. He's kind of it's great that this is the last one that we're going to deal with for, for the, for yeah, the moment. Yeah, it's the fifteenth, isn't it? Yeah. we've had fifteen episodes out this year, and this, yeah. this was this was number fifteen. There's something about Tom which I feel as though I might be slightly getting romantic here, over romantic, but I feel as though Tom kind of distills all of the guests that we've had Ah. that there's something about every single guest that we've had Uh that that is in tom interesting theory he's he's got a little bit of everyone yeah and and he's had such a multi-color multi-colored multicultural multi-genre career that's true um that has touched on so many different genres of ambient of techno of breakbeat of of drum and bass you know big room club music absolutely and and little bar gigs and and music that's in hotels and in shops and stuff like that he's yeah he's a real he's another vapor he is like 
omnipresent. And yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah. what? Which which part of the uh, the interview with the Jedi, as he used to be known, are we going to uh, to treat ourselves to? Yeah, we're going to go back in time, uh, and again, we're going to uh, hear what uh, what it was like when when Tom was back down in Devon or Cornwall or wherever it was, and uh, hanging out in Aphex Twins' bedroom <laughs> all those years ago. So, going to his bedroom. And he's got two monitor speakers suspended from the ceiling, and he was studying like acoustics and electronics. He suspended speak- speakers from the ceiling to isolate them. I mean, this is like eighteen-year-old kid who's actually sussed out, you know, <laughs> spatial acoustics. What right. the fudge? And then, um, <laughs> and then I'm looking down there, and he's taken the lid off a Roland SH101. Now, this, for those that don't know, is a very classic mono synth. It's grey. It's the one that um, you probably saw on top of the pops uh, freeze AEIOU. Yes, you can play it with like a guitar kind of vibe. So that beautiful grey mono synth lid was off, and. Richard was in there with um, a screwdriver adjusting the the frequency range of the potentiometer. Um, In other words, Roland had sort of set it human perception, which is 20 hertz up to about 20 kilohertz. Richard wasn't happy with that. No, no, no. He wanted it on dog perception and whale perception. (laughs) Dolphins, whales, bats... So he went, he went inf- infrasonic. I'm not joking. Infrasonic. So he, like a below human hearing range, infrasonic range, subsonics to ultrasonic. Yeah. And obviously speakers were, were kind of trying to deal with this. And I remember we were sitting there like experimenting with stuff, um, li- just listening to what was happening. And he'd, he'd pull down the frequency potentiometer and the cones are going, ooh. And then you just get to this feeling <laughs> and then almost. It's just, it's just pulsed like a... yeah. And we were exposing ourselves to kind of like three hertz, four hertz, delta wave, uh, gamma, beta, alpha. <laughs> so, you know, what I do now, ironically, as a psychoacoustics psycho- researcher, is to try to understand how binaural beats and frequencies and sound can neuromodulate our brains and use it in a, let's say, a really useful way to kind of help us be more productive and more energized, happier. Back then, we were just messing around in the Aphex bedroom just to see what was happening to our brains. And... Yeah, we were we were literally like messing on on our um, with with our whole way of perceiving sound. Everything oh, we always joke about bats kind of falling and smashing into the windows, and local <laughs> dogs going crazy, and yes. you know communicating with dolphins. That was Tom Middleton with the uh, the genesis if you like, of the artist that we've come to know and love slash fear as Aphex Twin. And what would the Tom the Jedi Middleton uh, pick as a tune to save this planet on a planetary theme? This is perfect. If we could sneak it on the end is Grange Hill by Alan Hawkshaw. (laughs) Of course. And and you know Alan Hawkshaw, um, I mean, Kirsty Hawkshaw's dad. Fine day today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him on a number of occasions. What a legend. Now, he also wrote one of the most sampled bits of, of um, music in the world of hip-hop, the Mohawks. Oh, Grange Hill Hawkshaw. My God. Wow. And good. Channel 4 News and amongst other things. I mean, Alan Hawkshaw and, and the library music writers. Um, oh, my goodness. That's a whole other conversation. Now, he's a trailblazer. You should get <laughs> <laughs>
Originals. Trailblazers. That wraps up our uh, best of 2018, which is our basically our best of. You know, since we started do since we started this project in uh, 2015, with huge thanks to uh, my colleague um, Nick Hawks, to every single guest that we've had, and of course to Deezer for uh, giving us the opportunity to uh, bring these trailblazers to a wider audience. And, and, and and speaking of the wider audience, I've got to say a huge shout to to all the people who have listened and have fed back, and they've hit us up on on. Twitter or Facebook or whatever with their comments, with their suggestions and we love that, don't we? Absolutely. So- it's it's really very uh, very heartwarming and very humbling getting feedback from each and every one of you and can I actually just uh, echo that, that it's really important uh, for us to uh, for, for you to rate us and to review us. Uh, when we first started Trailblazers, we were uh, the um, it, it was the charts were done on pure popularity on on downloads, and mm. we were the number two podcast in UK, which mm. <clears throat> we were very Music genre, yeah, very right. very very proud of. Mm. Um, but of course, now it's it's not on popularity; it's on it's on rating and reviewing. So yeah. so the charts work that way. So if you want to uh, help us by pushing up us up the charts, uh, give us a a, a a few stars or a thumbs up or whatever it is. Um, it, the, the, the various ways that you can review these things um, get stuck in rate us review us and uh, it makes a, a huge difference to us and of course this these were little niblets of um, some astonishing and uh, illuminating talks that Nick and I have had with some really incredible human beings and I would urge you to go back and listen to each and every one of them in full yeah, absolutely. And uh, you can do that on Deezer.com is where you go if you want to hear everything in, in its you know entirety. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so please do, uh, do, do check that out. And yes, keep uh, communicating with us um, uh, online and, and tell us which guests you'd like us to uh, talk to in 2019. And we do listen to all, all that feedback and, and that can help us um, you know, figure out who we target for, for the year ahead. Here, here. Have a fantastic uh, holiday period, uh, a, a wonderful Christmas and a, a, and a fantastic 2019 and hope to see you in it. And thanks a lot. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.